We begin with two scenes from two different times. The first takes us back to 1784. Samuel Shaw has recently arrived in Canton aboard the Empress of China, the first U.S. vessel to reach China. As supercargo, Shaw handles the business side of the venture, the buying and selling of goods and the payment of duties and port fees. Every day, a local Chinese merchant drops in on Shaw, points to the same article of merchandise, and offers to pay an amount Shaw considers low. I treated him politely every time, Shaw later writes, but adhered to my first demand. After cycling through this routine for several days, the man finally accepts the higher price, and Shaw happily sells him the article. Though the transaction is complete, the man is not finished. Throughout the process, he has shown a strange interest, not just in Shaw's merchandise, but in Shaw himself. Something about Shaw's behavior mystifies him, and he is determined to get to the bottom of it. "'You are not Englishman?' he finally asks. After Shaw confirms that he is not, the man's face brightens. "'The British always treat him like an inferior,' he says, whenever he approaches them to bargain. "'Go to hell, you damned rascal!' they sometimes scold. The anomaly of a polite English speaker now explained, the man becomes chatty. He has never heard of the United States, but nevertheless pays it a compliment. China men very much love your country. Though these words flatter Shaw, the ones that follow carry an ominous tone. All men come first-time China very good gentlemen, he observes. I think two-three times more Canton, you make all same Englishmen too. Shaw has made a favorable first impression, but will he and the Americans who follow him to China come to act more and more like the British? For our second scene, we vault forward eight decades to the year 1867, descending on a farewell banquet being held in Peking for a departing American. Anson Burlingame plans to head home after serving six years as the American minister to China. Overflowing with charisma and bonhomie, Burlingame has endeared himself to European and Chinese colleagues alike. In particular, he has won over both Prince Gong, the leader of China's ruling faction, and the members of China's Foreign Affairs Office, the hosts of this gathering. As Burlingame says his goodbyes, the Chinese blindside him with an astounding offer. Events of such importance have transpired within a few days, his flabbergasted wife informs their son, that I take advantage of the Russian mail to write you something about them. Her astonished husband has just been appointed ambassador from China to all the treaty powers. The Chinese government rapidly confers on Burlingame an official title and rank and empowers him to represent China in Washington, Moscow, European capitals, and most important of all, London. Days later, he and his delegation embark for San Francisco. What do these two scenes tell us? In the most practical sense, they set the temporal boundaries for this book, which begins with the Empress of China, 1784, and ends with the Burlingame Mission, 1867-1870. More substantively, the scenes describe Sino-American relationships, which lie at the heart of this book. In writing it, I wanted to tell the story of early Americans in China, explaining how the two peoples first met in the 18th century 
and how that relationship matured in the 19th.